I'd like to begin by asking you a question. When you hear the word conqueror, what comes to mind? What kind of people or situations do you think of when you hear that word conqueror? And if you have an answer to that question, feel free to just shout out your answer. Alexander the Great. Okay, a takeover. All right. William the Conqueror. <laughs> okay. A winner. Victory. Hitler. <laughs> yeah. I've asked this question in several different settings over the years, and the most common response I get usually is some kind of military leader who was identified as a particular kind of conqueror. I once asked a group of my Mexican friends this question, and they immediately named Hernando Cortez, who brutally conquered so much of their land. They don't remember Cortez the Conqueror fondly. Genghis Khan was the greatest conqueror in human history. He subdued different people groups living over a geographical area of more than 4,800,000 square miles. That's more than the entire United States. And Khan won that through brutal battles and sometimes by practicing genocide against people groups that he didn't like. And some of you mentioned other leaders who are known to history as conquerors. And so often when we hear that word and think of people, we think of people like Genghis Khan and Hernando Cortez and Attila the Hun. We think of Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin. And this is what a human conqueror often looks like. We don't think of this positively because a conqueror so often is someone who brings invasion and death and tyranny. And as a result, we often don't think well of conquerors. And therefore, when we do think of a conqueror, we usually don't think of Jesus. And in fact, the Jewish people found it hard to believe that Jesus was their Messiah precisely because they wanted him to be a military conqueror who would set them free from Roman rule. But that's not why Jesus came. He did not come to invade or to kill or to force people to serve him. He came to die. He came to die and then conquer death. And then because of that, he could conquer the problem of human sin. He came to conquer the perpetual human problem of the shame and blame game. You see, we need to admit that we all are guilty of betraying our Creator. We've all done things that are harmful to ourselves and harmful to others and have fallen short of what God expects. And so the painful fact is we deserve blame for our behavior. We should feel ashamed for our behavior. And yet we can't fix this problem on our own. And amazingly, God has solved it for us. He conquered that problem through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so this morning, we want to look at, at the Bible and understand the very unusual way in which Jesus Christ became a conqueror for us. Let's begin in the book of Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. 
in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We're diving into the middle of a letter written by the Apostle Paul. It's a letter of encouragement and instruction and challenge to Christians living in the ancient city of Philippi, which today would be in the modern nation of Greece. Now, Philippi was an international center of trade, so it was a very cosmopolitan and multicultural community. It was a place with a wide range of socioeconomic levels, and this diversity was reflected in the church. We learn from the Bible that three of the very first members of this church were a very successful and prominent businesswoman, a jailer, and a young girl who had been rescued from slavery. And it doesn't take much thinking to realize those people had very little in common with one another. So they had to look beyond themselves in order to become a healthy community of faith. And the challenge of doing that only grew as the church grew larger and as it became increasingly diverse. And so Paul is addressing that problem here in this part of the letter, and he says they should address that problem by practicing some humility. And the model for their their humility is Jesus. Jesus practiced incredible humility. And as the Apostle Paul holds up Jesus as a role model for Christian attitudes and behavior, he offers here this very succinct summary of the way that Jesus approached the cross. And Paul writes about the God who became a man in order to take away our shame and our blame. God became a man in an act of amazing humility. Now, the wording of the original Greek text here draws a very sharp contrast between the two natures that are described. We're told here that Jesus was by nature God, and then he took on the nature of a man. And yet those are two different natures. And Paul wants us to know here beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is God. That is his permanent, eternal, unchanging nature. And yet when Jesus took on the physical appearance of a man and the human nature of a man, that was only temporary. It was for a season of time. But this means then that for a brief season of time, Jesus Christ appeared on earth and he was fully God and he was fully human. Now, how could he be both of those things at once? I can't explain that. I can't fully understand that. And I have to say, I'm glad that I can't explain it. I don't want to be able to explain everything about God because if I can explain him completely, then he's not much of a God, is he? And the fact that God became human and carried both natures at the same time is a marvelous mystery. And I love the fact that there are parts of God that always will be mysterious. 
And when we encounter this mysterious aspect of God, it ought to drive us beyond just belief in God to worship of God. I worship him because of his many mysterious ways that remind me he's God and I'm not. He's God. He deserves our worship because he is so mysterious. And Paul is telling us here that Jesus was, is, and always will be God. And it should blow us away to realize that this amazing God voluntarily changed his status and also became human. As Paul writes here, Jesus refused to cling to the position and power and authority that he had in heaven, and instead he willingly gave it all up for us. I, I think about what Jesus did, giving up all the joy and perks of heaven. And I have to admit, I'm not like that. And I'll bet you're not either, because part of our human condition is that we enjoy power and position and influence. We like using those things for our own advantage. We like the fact that they can make our, ourselves feel important. When we have position or power or influence, we do not like giving it up. Just think of coaches and athletes who stay in the game long after they should hang it up. Think of business executives who won't retire because they revel in money and power. Or sometimes, sadly, church leaders whose identity is wrapped up in their role and they refuse to pass on the mantle of leadership to others. You see, our human nature is that if we have power and influence, oh, we want to cling to it. And the flip side is, if we don't have it, then we try to grasp for more. And that was the sin of Adam and Eve. They were given incredible freedom by God to enjoy his creation, but they wanted more. They wanted more knowledge. They wanted more pleasure. They wanted to be more like God. So they yield to temptation. They betrayed their creator, and they transformed a world of innocence into a world full of shame and blame, a world full of guilt and cover-up, and manipulation, all because they were not willing to be content with what they'd been given. And we do the same thing in our own way over and over and over again. That's why Paul holds up Jesus as our role model rather than Adam and Eve. They grasped to become like God. While Jesus, who was God, did not cling to that. Instead, he let go of it. He let go of his heavenly influence to correct the problem that had been initiated by our ancestors. The first Adam messed things up. So Jesus came as the second Adam to set things right. And so he sacrificed the freedom of heaven for us to save you and me from ourselves. 
as I think about this incredible sacrifice of Jesus, it occurs to me that some people love to think about God as an angry and vengeful judge, but, but that's not the picture we get here. We get a picture of incredible humility, of loving sacrifice. And I think it's almost impossible to imagine a God who would, as it says here in verse 7, make himself nothing. He made himself nothing for us. The original Greek also can be translated this way. He emptied himself. And in a very real sense, Jesus did empty himself because he was an infinite God who chose to embrace the finite limitations of human life. And this means as a man, he experienced hunger and thirst. He walked the dusty roads of ancient Israel and sat down to evening meals with aching calves and sore feet. He experienced the human emotions of frustration and sorrow and disappointment and grief. He was exposed to human temptations like gluttony, selfishness, anger, and lust. And he did not yield to those things, but he had to deal with them. And thankfully, he conquered them. And yet it all was an incredible hassle. And he could have avoided all of that by just staying home. By staying home in heaven. Instead, he came as a man who filled the role of a servant, Paul says. Now, when you're a servant, you lose a lot of control. This means that during the time he walked the earth, Jesus wasn't doing what he wanted, he was doing what the Father wanted. And what the Father wanted was to set us free from the shame and blame game. And Jesus died to set us free from the legitimate blame that we bear and the legitimate shame that we feel for our sinful attitudes and actions. The blame and shame we carry for betraying our Creator. So what Paul is describing here is a very costly sacrifice. Jesus sacrificed his freedom as God. He sacrificed his life in perhaps the most painful way possible. The father experienced the agony of sacrificing his own son. And yet it was this sacrifice that enabled Jesus to be our conqueror. We don't normally think of it that way, but this is what allowed Jesus to conquer the problem of human sin. And this was a sacrifice that resulted for Jesus in great honor because the crucifixion was followed by the resurrection. And that's what Paul talks about next as we move on in verse 9. Therefore, Paul writes, therefore, because of what Jesus did, because he sacrificed himself, because he voluntarily humbled himself and became a servant, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. So the Father exalts Jesus. He does that by raising him from the grave. 
But the Father does more than just return Jesus to life. He doesn't just breathe life back into Jesus so that he returns to life as a man. No, the Father raises Jesus to heaven and establishes him as Lord of all. Now that's a significant honor. And yet we need to see that Jesus does not grab this honor for himself. It's an honor that's bestowed upon him. And yet even though the Father is the one who gives him this honor, Jesus' desire is to reflect that glory right back to the Heavenly Father. Everything that Jesus does as a son is designed to give glory to his Father. Because it was the Father's plan that Jesus obediently pursued. It was the Father's plan that was fulfilled through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus is honored because he accomplished the Father's plan. He fulfilled the Father's goal because what the Father wanted was to conquer human sin so we could be restored to God, so we could gain back something of what was lost through the sin of Adam and Eve. That's why Jesus is Lord. And that statement only is true because of the resurrection. It's only true because of the empty tomb and Jesus' return to heaven. And when we say, Jesus is Lord, we are saying something so powerful. We're not stating our belief in some abstract principle. We're stating our conviction that Jesus is alive and that our deepest desire is to follow him. Jesus is Lord is a statement of faith in the living God. The God who died and who rose to set us free from the shame and blame of our sins. As I read these words, Jesus is Lord, I'm reminded that sometimes we make the life of faith way more complex than it needs to be. I think what we really have here is the the very first creed of the early church, and it is both simple and profound. Jesus is Lord. And we find that phrase again and again in the Bible because if you called Jesus Lord in the first century, you were identifying yourself as a follower of Christ. And when you said these words, you were affirming your deep belief that Jesus was more than a rabbi. He was more than a prophet. He was more than a miracle worker. He was and is the Lord, the crucified and resurrected Lord, the Lord who conquered human shame and blame and simply says, will you just put your trust in me? Jesus is Lord is the foundational creed that unites believers. And if you can say sincerely that Jesus is your Lord, then you're headed in the right direction and you're not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus is Lord because of his death and resurrection. He's Lord because the Father honors him with that title. And yet, what Jesus did here, his sacrifice, the honor, it's not about him. He didn't do it for himself. He did it for us. Everything that Jesus does is designed to give glory to the Father, and the Father's plan was designed to lead us to our victory. Because through Jesus, we can have victory over shame 
and blame. And it's all because of who Jesus is and what he did. I love the way this is summarized for us in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Let's take a look. Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Here's the key phrase. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I don't know that we fully realize just how horrible crucifixion was. It was so horrible that even the Romans, who carried out so many crucifixions, oftentimes could not speak directly of it. They used euphemisms. On more than one occasion, when carrying out a sentence against a convicted criminal, a Roman judge said, hang him on the tree of shame. He just couldn't say, crucify him. Because crucifixion was such a brutal, painful, and shameful death. And that's what the enemies of Jesus were counting on. They wanted to use the pain of the cross to destroy his life and the shame of the cross to destroy his reputation, and they failed. They failed because the Son of God scorned the shame of the cross. Instead, he embraced it on our behalf, and he endured it, and he conquered it. All because he trusted the plan of the Heavenly Father. And because of his obedience, he was raised from the grave. And so the empty tomb is a sign of his victory, but it's also a sign of our victory. That Jesus completed the task. And to seal the deal, to confirm the victory, Jesus now sits beside the Father in heaven as our living Lord. It is so vital for us to see that his sacrifice on the cross and his return to life are not ultimately for him, they're for us. Our God did this for us. And in doing so, he did what we cannot do for ourselves. Because as much as I hate to admit it, when we're left on our own, we just keep reproducing the sin of Adam and Eve. We ignore God's wise counsel. We ignore the healthy boundaries that he sets for our lives. We continually grasp for more than is good for us. And then we have to deal with the fallout. We have to deal with the shame and the blame. And so the author of Hebrews invites us here to respond. And he does so by describing the life of faith like a race. And we have a clear choice about how we're going to run this race. We don't want to run it the way Adam and Eve did. We want to run the race the way Jesus did. And he won that race. And we can too. And that's why we have a picture here of Jesus standing at the finish line, waiting for us, urging us on, waiting to welcome us. And the message here is that you and I can run a good race. We can run a straight race. We can run a faithful race if we just keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. 
the Jesus who died and rose to conquer our shame and our blame so we could enjoy the richness of life as children of God. As we see from these Bible passages, the cross and the resurrection only make sense together. Without the cross, without Jesus' death, there would not be a resurrection. And without the resurrection, Christianity would simply be a set of principles and ideals to follow given to us by a dead teacher. Together, the cross and the resurrection tell us the story of Jesus. Jesus the conqueror, the one who sets us free from the shame and blame game. And because we are set free, the historical events of Good Friday and Easter Sunday are not just information for us to know. These are not simply facts for us to assimilate. These are actions taken by God on our behalf and they invite us into a different kind of life. And so in both of these passages we've explored here in Philippians and in Hebrews, we are urged to follow the example of Jesus. We are urged to take action. Because if we don't act, then we don't have faith. Faith always requires us to do something. And so I think these words from the Bible challenge all of us to take a personal inventory this morning and to consider our own spiritual condition. And I don't know exactly what God might be saying to you in the quietness of your own mind and heart as you have encountered this truth from the Bible. But here's some questions that you might want to ponder. Are you a believer in Jesus who's just drifting along, taking the life of faith for granted? Are you truly experiencing the victorious life that Jesus wants for you? Can you say, Jesus is Lord and mean it because you truly do want him to be the Lord of your life? Are you far from God and caught in a never-ending cycle of sin and shame and blame? And on this day, this day when we honor Jesus as our risen Lord, this day when we recognize that Jesus conquered sin and death so we could be free, I think it's a great time not to procrastinate if you have questions like these. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, but but you're struggling in your faith, if you're struggling to let Jesus be Lord, if you're not truly experiencing spiritual freedom, then we would love to pray with you about that. We want to help you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus so that you can run a good race. And if you've never taken that initial step of faith, we invite you to get connected to Jesus this morning, right now. You can be baptized and let Jesus conquer the shame and blame of your past so you can experience a fresh start with him. You can invite Jesus to be your Lord. And we'd love to speak with you about that. If it's time for you to do something, then don't wait. As we wrap up the service in a moment, you can make your way over to the prayer corner and 
speak with one of our elders. They will be happy to talk with you and pray with you. I'll be out in the lobby. You can come up and speak with me and we'll find a private place and we'll talk and we'll pray. The message of this story, the message of Easter is that Jesus died and rose to conquer shame and blame. And we can let go of that. We can be set free of that. Wherever you find yourself, if you are stuck in any way, let Jesus set you free this morning.